knowing what it is to be in the presence of God. Feeling the presence of God. Experience, experiencing joy in the presence of God. Knowing peace. Experiential communion. All of that language essentially is utterly worthless if it is not rooted in the Word of God. It's from the Scriptures that we know God. It's from the Bible that we know Him. And so I want to look at a passage that I want it to give us real confidence in the communion that we can have with our God because of what we know. Not from something in ourselves. Not from our emotions. Not from some conclusion that we have came to ourselves. But because God has spoken it in His Word. And we can believe God. We can believe the Word of God. So let's, let's look first. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. From continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, there's several thoughts I want to pull out of this specifically so that we can understand what Christ does for us as priests. But I want to, I want to tell you just by way of introduction, why, just more in detail, why I think this is an important topic to study. In our day, it is common for people to believe that the practical things of God are not this. That, that in order to, ha to, to really get practical instruction from the Word of God, you have to go other places other than the work of Christ. But that is false. The most practical application is looking at who Christ is and beholding His glory. And that is what each and every one of us need to do in our congregation. It's something that we need to do in our lives. And it's either easier said than done. But it is, and it's difficult, but it's a work that we must set ourselves to. To meditate upon Christ day in and day out. It's so deep. When we say that Christ is in all of the scriptures, I mean, we don't even understand what we're saying. I mean, it's amazing. The things that are in the Word of God. And how from Genesis to Revelation, the more I dig, the, the more I see things that a year ago I had no idea were there. It, it, and it all speaks of Christ. This book is about Christ, the, the Son of God. 
And so we want to be people who think deeply, not just the men, not just the brothers. It, when we say think deeply, I want us to realize that it's, it, this, although there's going to be some people who are more drawn and susceptible to just, I don't know, like philosophical thought or whatever, thinking deeply should, among us, it shouldn't just be a personality quirk. It should be common for all of us to, to think about the Word of God, to, to understand who God is, um, to, to think deeply about these things. And, and today we're going to think, I want us to look at what Christ does as mediator, as mediator, specifically as a priest. Um, but I'm just going to, we're going to just walk through the text here and kind of do a, a broad verse-by-verse exposition. Uh, but... You know, the book of Hebrews, what we see primarily is the author of the epistle is setting up the fact that Christ is supreme. He is, he is better than the old. He is far superior to anything that was in the old covenant. And, and that's, that's really the, the main thrust of the entire book. He is supreme. And we, we, when we come here to our text... The first words we see is, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It's talking about the former priests, meaning the priests under the old Levitical system. The former priest. Now, we have Jesus, who is the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We remember that. Austin did a series on that. It wasn't too long ago. Uh, and that's what we have just before this passage. But the former priests were many in number, meaning there were a lot of them. They, um, you know, they had many common priests. And they had one high priest at a time. But um, I, was, I was reading one commentator records, you know, from the time of Exodus and Leviticus up until the time this is written, they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of high priests. They died. There were many high priests. There were many high priests because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died. So there had to be another one to come and take their place. Their son would take over. Someone else would come and take over. So there had to be many of them. Now, just really quick, I mean, just from a broad perspective, why, why are they dying? Why? Why does anyone die? Death. death. The wages of sin is death. Sin is why they're dying. They're sinners. They're imperfect. They were sinners, so they died. And that prevented them from doing the work they had to do as a priest. Now, what is a priest? A priest is someone who stands before God and man. We say that's a mediator. A priest is someone who would go and he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people before God. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. That was a specific office that they held. And again, we see here that they, they, they didn't have one man who did that. They were prevented from, care, from continuing that office because, they, because of their sin and because they died. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Christ holds his priesthood permanently. He is a priest forever. He is always a priest. He is a priest even now. 
He is a priest forever. So we see the contrast there that He is better than the old. Where the old passed away, they died. He does not pass away. His priesthood is forever. Forever. Because He is without sin. He is the Holy One. Knew no sin. He is continually a priest. Forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Therefore, He's able to save forever and fully. He's always able to save. Because He's, he's always there, forever there. He never ceases to be there. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always the mediator, and He's always the priest, holding His priesthood. And not only do we have the time factor that He is eternal, He is the eternal great high priest, but He is also able to save in its fullness in every way. He is the mediator who is prophet, priest, and king. Everything that the sinner needs for salvation, Christ is able to provide. He lives forever, and He's able to save fully. Such a high priest truly befits us. For verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You know, uh, we think of a, I'm trying to think of a, a good analogy here. Think of a fingerprint. If you put your fingerprint down, there leaves a mark there. If you stamp your finger and you put it on the paper, there is a mark there that perfectly fits to your finger. Or we think of a, a, a sole in a shoe. If you have a, you know, nowadays they wear those, me and Kelly talk about that, those, uh, those shoes where you, they look funny, like the finger shoes, you know what I'm talking about, that perfectly fit to your feet. That, that's the picture here. Every single thing that the sinner is, Christ is perfectly fit to save him. He is the perfect Savior. Every single need, every single deficiency, in every single place, I mean beyond our, our, our finite understanding, He is perfectly fit to be our Savior in every way. Not only as far as what was, was prophesied in the Old Testament, but just who He is. I mean, just who He is. He meets, he meets every... Um, Every prophecy, every, uh, every type and shadow of who the Messiah would be, perfectly. And again, everything we need. He, is, uh, he has to be the son of David. And he has to be the son of God. He has to be, he has to be the God-man. He has to be every single thing that the Savior must be. That's who he is. That's who he is. Every place we have failed, he's perfect. He, he's holy. Spotless, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He is the perfect high priest. Never sinned. Never sinned. Without sin. And he is exalted above the heavens. He's sitting at the right hand of God. After he completed his work in sacrificing himself, he ascends into heaven and he sits down in the throne room of heaven at the right hand of God. That is where he is. Still a priest forever. 
He has no need, like those high priests, speaking of the former high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The, 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 the picture here is, again, all the sacrifices that had to be made throughout the Old Testament, where things that were, were made constantly, every day, and then also what was made on the Day of Atonement, once a year. Where, where that continually had to happen every year, over and over and over, consistently. But Christ made one sacrifice forever. One sacrifice forever. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for His own sins. On the Day of Atonement, you can go to Leviticus 16, you can see this. The high priest, before he could make um, a sacrifice for, for sin for, for the people, he had to first make a sacrifice for himself. Christ doesn't have to do that. He, offers, he makes one sacrifice. One sacrifice for his people, and it is efficient forever. Now, uh, just notice, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Actively, as a priest, as I said this several weeks ago, actively as a priest, he offers himself up. So he is a priest while on earth. He is a priest. Now, again, there's a lot to be taken away from this, um, but what I want us to, to focus on is just basically two primary questions. Uh, and that is really the, the, the question that we see in the... Um, in the catechism, which is how does Christ execute the office of a priest? And for whom does Christ execute the office of a priest? Now, um, let's, let's look at that. So how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Answer, and this is something that I hope we're all familiar with, and his once offering up of himself to a, as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. So as a priest, he makes satisfaction, he makes atonement, and he makes intercession. So we're going to look first at atonement. His death was substitutionary. Notice, again, he's talking about for, in verse 27, you see, for those of the people. For those of the people. That was what the high priest did. That's what we see again in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. He, a sacrifice has to be made for the people. And that's what Christ does for his people. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. You know, Paul often asks that question. Um, we say Christ died for sinners. Well, what does the for mean? That means for his people in our place. In our room instead, in the place of his people, he died. He was imputed with their sin guilt. This is not just merely an example. Although we heard this morning that we see Christ as an example, as a sufferer, but that's not the primary reason. That's not what he does in making an atonement. He is a substitute. As a priest, he acts not as a mere example, but as a working substitute. Just as the, the high priest on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament got up in the morning knowing this is the Day of Atonement and I have a work to do. Our Savior, he intentionally went to the cross and he made atonement for his people in their place. 
in their place. And also, he's not a victim. He's not a victim. He did not, he doesn't just die at the hands of men. He doesn't die at the hands of men. Again, we know that he's, he's sinless in every way. He lays down his own life and he takes it up again. He has power over death. No sin in this man. Death has no hold or grip on him. No man could take his life away from him. No one could. He was not a victim, but he laid down his life as a working priest, making substitution, as making atonement, substitutionary atonement. And again, he doesn't die just as a regular man. He's a, he's a sinless man. A sinless man doesn't just die. He is the God-man who gave up, who laid down his own life. And then his substitutionary death was an expiation of guilt, as I've already said. Not his own guilt. He has no guilt. He did not have to make sacrifice for himself. What's he do? What's he do? He makes sacrifice for his people. For his people, where he takes away the guilt of his people. We see this picture on the Day of Atonement with the scapegoat, where the sins are laid on the scapegoat. The sins of the people, the guilt of the people, the, the punishment that the people deserve. All of the guilt is laid on the scapegoat and is, is taken out into the wilderness. That's what Christ does. He removes the penalty. He removes the penalty. At the cross, he takes the wrath that his people deserve. Where we deserve to burn in an eternal hell. Christ, in a, in a few short hours, as the eternal Son of God, he, he, he extinguishes the wrath of God. This is the work that He does. He takes the penalty away. His substitutionary death was an oblation, or an offering unto God that makes propitiation or satisfaction, again, verse 27, for those of the people, for the sins for the people. He makes propitiation unto God for the people. Now, this is not an offering, as the cults say, unto Satan. This is something that he does unto God. It's not to some just vague principle in the universe, like, uh, like Aslan. You know, I don't know if you want to remember that. There was just this divine law that sacrifice had to be made to. No, that's not it at all. God appointed the Son to do this. And he makes propitiation unto God. That's what the priest always did. It's seen very clear throughout the Old Testament. The priest always made an offering unto Yahweh. That is the pattern we see. God is the offended party. And Christ offered himself once unto God for the sins of the people. And he satisfies God. He appeases God. And his substitutionary death paid for all types of sins. Throughout the Old Testament, we see, we see sacrifices have to be made for this and for that and for this and for that. This man, through one sacrifice, has paid for all of that. Sins by, of omission, sins of commission, uh, that we do intentionally, sins that we do by accident, things that we've forgotten. Thing, I mean, he pays for it all. That's what he does. He is the perfect high priest and he is... He is far superior to anything that was in the old. Far superior to any of the former priests. Now, again, moving on quickly. 
But let's, let's look at the second part of the question. Christ executes his office as a priest two ways. If someone came and asked you that, could you make sure you can answer it? By, by making atonement and by making intercession. So uh, this, this is uh, question 55 uh, from the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism. How doth Christ make intercession? Answer. Christ maketh intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven, in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them and procuring for them. Now, Christ's intercession in heaven is the application of Christ's sacrifice on earth. So remember, what goes into the holy, holy place? It's the blood. So when Christ, he ascends into heaven, and he sprinkles the throne room of God with his blood, and he is ever there even now, representing his people, showing forth and commemorating the work that he did at Calvary. It is there. He is there for us. There is an uh, a intertwining between these two. It is the atonement that lays the ground for the intercession. It, it, you, you can't separate them. And there is a, a, a just like when we study the Trinity, you know, there, there's things that we just can't, we, we, can't, we can't say about the Trinity, well, look at this clover or look at this ice cube because we're going to end up in some type of heresy or, or be wrong. This is the same way. What's going on in the throne room of heaven? There is a mystery to it. We can't see it. But what we do know is he is there. And he is the mediator. And he's always the mediator. It's who he is. It's who he is. If Christ... So just understand this intertwining. Again, we see this all throughout the scripture. If Christ does not make intercession, then Christ's atonement does not save to the uttermost for those whom he died. It doesn't. He has to go into the presence of God for his people. Just as the old, and we look at the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, the animal is killed outside, but it's not finished until the blood is taken in and the mercy seat is sprinkled with blood. And that is what Christ does. Now, if you recall in the Old Testament, again, these men died. It was, they, they couldn't camp out in there. They had to, they had to wash themselves. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, it, we can turn there to Leviticus 16. Let's just turn there. Look at uh, verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. These men, they, they could not stay there forever. But Christ is there forever, making intercession. You know, people talk very flippantly about prayer. They talk very flippantly about going into the presence of God. But it's not a flippant thing. It's not a flippant thing. God is holy. 
He is holy. And so we must have a mediator. We must have an intercessor. And that is who Christ is. That is what he does. He goes in and he makes intercession. He's still making intercession. And again, if, if Christ doesn't make atonement, then he cannot make intercession. He does not lay down his life. He cannot go and make intercession for us in heaven. Now Christ's intercession in heaven, a good way for us to look at this verse back in Hebrews 17. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 7. It says he ever lives to make intercession for them. A good, the best way to look at this is to understand that he ever lives to make mediation. He is the mediator. We, we, you know, in our systematic theologies and our confession, you know, we always put, we always, we like to divide up prophet, priest, and king for our own understanding of what Christ does. But there, again, it's so closely intertwined; it can't be really separated. He is, he is the 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 king who is a prophet. He is the the priest who is a king. All of these things he does as mediator. The, the, the big thing to understand that he, he's, he's like us. He's in the presence of God, a man like us. And he's there representing his people. He's representing his people. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, representing a covenant people there who are in union with him. And again, as I've already said, he's perpetually interceding. He's perpetually interceding. He's praying for his people. He's there, just as we read, in, in, uh, just as I read from the Catechism. He is appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven. He is always a man in heaven. The man is there. His divine nature is everywhere, but the man is in heaven. And there is a mystery there. He is the God man. But he is in heaven. There's one like us. Remember Austin did the thing on the ascension. He is one like us who ascended into heaven. And it, it puts his hand to the, to, to the gate of the door. Heaven's, open, heaven's gate opens up for him. And he goes in to the throne room of heaven. And the one who, who sacrificed himself is there for us. Before the Father. And he is our surety. And we use that language, it's very popular in uh, Pentecostal churches, or, or people use this language all the time of pleading the blood. Christ is there pleading His blood for us, before the Father. The same Father who ordained Him to be high priest. The same Father. There is not a, there's not a division in the Godhead. That's why these are deep things that are important to think through. That, that truthfully, if, as I begin to study this, I understand that it takes you, it takes you all over the Bible. Um, but He is the one, the Father is the one who appointed the Son to this work. And we need to understand that this is a great work. That the Father appointed His Son to this in love. He is the mighty high priest who does this mighty great work. Who is there as king of His people. As prophet. And he is the priest doing something that no one else could do. No one else could do this. And through him, we have access to the Father. We can draw near through him because he appears before the Father, commemorating what he did for us in his presence. 
He satisfied divine justice. And we are accepted because of what he did. And we can come into his presence because of what he did. If you turn with me over to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus 30, verse 10. And again, this portion is talking about the altar of incense. Which, again, just if, just if you can picture, we have the Holy of Holies where, where it was the inner place, the Holy of Holies. And on the outer side, we, right before the veil, there's the altar of incense that the priest would light. And it's always burning. It's always burning. And that's what this portion is talking about here is the altar of incense, which which represents prayer. Prayers of the saints. Um, and then also, I, I would even say, the prayers of Christ while He's on earth. Um, and, and continuing, this is, it represents prayer. But verse 10, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. Talking about the horns of the altar. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. The picture here, I just want you to see how the, the altar of incense, the incense that's burning is connected with the atonement. The, the prayers that go forth apart from the atonement of Christ, they're not heard. There has to be an atonement that is laid down first. And that, that's the picture we see of Christ. The praying and the atonement goes together. The prayers of Christ without, without His blood being shed, without Him making atonement, His prayers for us, I mean, there, there's no efficacy there. But it is, a, it is effective now. But he has made atonement. There had to be a sacrifice. And, and, and that is what He is doing in heaven. Atonement has been made. And He is in heaven, in the holy place, one like us. And then our own prayers, we can pray. Because the blood has paved a way. Christ has made a way in His death for us to go into the presence of God. So we can pray. It's opened up for us because Christ has made atonement. It's a pathway for us to go in. He is the pathway for us to go into the presence of God. Now, the next question I want us to ask is... And it's a very obvious question. We should already know it. From where does Christ's ability come from to execute his priestly duties? Now, again, the text answers this for us. But the answer is who he is. It's simply who he is. Everything that he is makes him fit to execute the office of priest for us. He was from his divine appointment to be the anointed one, the Christ, who would do this work, and from his own nature, where he is both God and man, and sinless and ever-living. He is, uh, his position where he is, is his intercession. Where, where he is as the, the high priest who doesn't die, 
who's in the holy, holy place. And he's sitting, he's sitting there at the right hand of the Father, one like us. That is his intercession where we are accepted because we are united with him as his people. We are united with him. And, and, and that is where his ability and efficacy come from. He, he is one who is like no other. He is the one who the Lord has sworn that he will be a priest forever. He is the one. The Lord, he says, I have sworn and will not change my mind. I have sworn and I will not repent that he will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is the one who is eternal, without father, without any type of, uh, of beginning or end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who can do this. He is the God-man. He is the one like us. He is the one that from eternity past was given a people. And we, we need to understand more of his nature. Because he is a savior. That, that's who he is. And when we begin to understand that, it, it really changes our perspective of drawing near to him. Because he is a savior. He was given a people, we can't fathom in our mind what eternity is. An eternity past, we can't fathom that. He was given a people to be a mediator for. And he doesn't change. Yesterday, today, forever, he is a mediator. And he's in heaven for us. He doesn't go to heaven. He's not there for no reason. As the mediator, he is in heaven for his people. That's what he is. He is a savior of his people. It's amazing. He is both God and man, sinless and ever living. Now, for whom does Christ execute the office of a priest? That's the next question. Now, uh, we're going to... I've already said this, but we're going to look at it from a big perspective, and then a small perspective, and then a really small perspective. He executes the office of a priest for those who are in the eternal covenant. For those who are in the covenant of grace. It was always the plan of God that he would come and be a priest for a specific, particular people. Those whom the Father had given him. That is who he is a priest for. That is who he mediates for. That is who he came into the world and laid down his life for, for his elect. He died for the people that the Father had given him. And we see that in our text. If you look at verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and those for the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So who does he offer up himself for? Very simple. For the people. For a people. Not, not a, a vague, just general atonement, right? Not just anyone, but a particular people. For the people given to him by the Father from eternity past. Now, who else? Let's bring it a little closer. For whom does Christ execute the office of a priest? Those who bear the effects of Christ's mediatorial work. 
We can see that around us. If a man shows no evidence that he's been regenerated, we can say that there is one who doesn't show evidence that Christ is interceding. He's interceding for them in heaven. When we see a man who has no fruits of the Holy Spirit, to then say, well, Christ has, has died for him, and he's in heaven, and he's interceding for him, and he, he's, he sent forth his spirit, but it's just not working. That's, I, I think, in a sense, that's, I wouldn't say blasphemy. It, it really is. Christ is not a failure as mediator. He, he teaches His people. And the effects of that teaching as Him being prophet is seen in His people. They respond to it. They're, they're hungry for it. They love His teaching. It's seen in His church as, as people begin to grow. He is a king. He is a king who rules. His people love His rule. And, and the effect of, of Him being king is seen. When, when a man continues to to live in the kingdom of darkness, is it really right to say that it's even possible that that, that, that man is, is, is bowing down to King Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. He is king, and he is ruling, and he is reigning over his church. And his bride is beautiful. His bride is spotless. He is king. And the effects of him being prophet is seen in his people for those who, whom he is a prophet for. And it is seen in his church. It's seen him being king. And it's seen as him as a priest where he sends forth the Holy Spirit. He does all of these things. His mediatorial work for all those whom he is executing this office, we can see its effects. We can see its effects. And again, bringing it a little closer, the answer is those who are drawing near. He is able to save to the uttermost those who are drawing near. And we see that again in our text. Those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. He is a Savior who welcomes sinners. And for whom does Christ execute the office of a priest? Those who come. Those who come, He is there interceding for them, and he receives them. But, but when a man doesn't come, never comes, it, there we can say that that is a man whom Christ is not executing the office of a priest for. He's doing this work for a people, those in the eternal covenant, and that it's seen, visibly seen among us. The fruits of it are seen. Now, just by way of application, we all have to be in prayer. We have to be a praying people. Whatever excuse you may have not to come in prayer, look here at this one who says that he is able to save those who draw near to God through him. This is who he is. He's ever living. He is eternally there to save it's amazing. It's who He is. He is a Savior. And He is one who has made a way for us to come into the presence of God. And our prayers are heard and are accepted. He takes our, our, our offerings and He makes them right. He 
sprinkles them with their, with, with their blood, and he, and he makes them acceptable before the Father. He takes our prayers and He makes them acceptable unto God. Where every prayer, every good work, every act of service should be thrown away. But He makes it right as it goes through Him. As it goes through Him. So we have every reason to come. So whatever excuse you may have not to be in prayer, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Whatever excuse you have. And realize that there is one in the holy place. The holy, holy place for you. So that you can have access unto God. Don't neglect this great access. Don't neglect it. And then the second thing to consider. When, when, when you feel like you're, 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 you're going to yield to temptation... Remember the kindness of our God. Remember that we have one who is a Savior to save us from our sin. He is good, and we have no reason to go after lesser things. We have, as we heard the other week, we have a greater strength within us than our flesh. We don't have to give ourselves to our flesh. We don't have to do it. We've been freed from the bondage of sin. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us that Christ sent from heaven and has given to us to lead us in all truth and lead us in all things. We can pray to God. We, we have everything that we need. We're not lacking. We're not lacking anything. We're, we don't have to wait for some, something else to happen. He's coming back. But He's already doing the work and He's already making everything new. He is already king of his church. He's already teaching his people. And he's already making us holy. We have, we have everything that we need. It's very simple. We just have to use the means. And we, can, we have the spirit to teach us from the word. The, the, the same spirit wrote the word. We, we have the word. And, and we have a savior that we can call upon. And we have the Spirit whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Where there is a separation that should be there because of our sin. This great chasm. But Christ has bridged the gap. So, the last thing. When we talk about spiritual communion. We talk about the Puritans. So many people have this perspective of theology. Or um, like, like the Puritans were somehow... These cold, rigid men. That idea is false. That's not true. John Owen, and these men who wrote a lot of these works that we talk about, again, they're just men. And there's more, we just have their books. I'm sure that they had many more problems than we could ever number. But they were warm men. Our theology should drive us in our communion. Drive it. As we understand the scriptures, we have more warmth, more love and deeper, sweeter experiential communion with God. But, but when the knowledge is separated, we're going to end up in darkness. We have to stay rooted in the Scriptures, and the Scriptures will drive us into sweeter fellowship with God. Let's pray.